It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and we're using a lot of various scriptures. We're kind of out of our normal mode of, of going through uh, the gospel of Matthew, what we've been in for boy, almost a couple years now. And we'll keep going after this series, but we wanted to start the year off talking about how Christians should think. So we're looking at biblical worldview, and today we'll be looking at glory in every square inch. Hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts this morning. So, Father, help us today to grasp the depths of your wisdom, the depths of your knowledge, glory of Christ. And Lord, help us to see how, according to the great grace that you've given us, that we can take everything in life, every aspect, every, every corner of it, eating, drinking, whatever we do, and we can do all for your glory. I pray even right now that even as we listen to the word preached, that you would receive great glory from the preacher and the hearer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And hopefully you have a, uh, a handout with the notes on it this morning. I want to welcome all the sick people that texted me. Thanks for letting me know so we can pray for you. And they're watching online. So we, I love what Pastor David told us a few weeks ago. Online church is not a replacement. But we are thankful that when people are ill and those who are shut-ins and such and not able to be here, that they can at least participate by hearing the word preached. So I'm thankful for that. Um, when we think of glory in every square inch, right, we, we think of the word glory. I mean, we can see that and understand that from the perspective of, of church, right? When we're worshiping God, I mean, we're just singing about the great God. There's glory in that. There's glory in getting up in the morning and, and seeing you know, the, the, the sun coming up and getting your Bible and diving into it and having just a great time with the Lord. There's glory in that. There's glory in praise and worship. There's glory in prayer. All of these things, right? We find ourselves being caught up in, in glimpses of God's glory in such things. But, but what about other things? What about my job? What about Monday morning? What about uh, you know, my commute, my drive to work? What about my school? I got a math assignment that's due. What about coffee and baseball and diapers and spit-up rags and all of the things that go on with everyday life? How in the world do we glorify God in those things? We've been reading this quote a few times throughout our sermon series, one of my favorite quotes from Abraham Kuyper. He said when he was giving his, uh, the inaugural address at the dedication of the Free University of Amsterdam that he had founded, he said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's His. Think about that. All of it, every, and I love the language, every square inch 
Get your measuring tape out and measure all of it, every single part of it. Christ says, it's mine. And too often though, the church and those who are followers of Christ would want to rewrite that quote. Even subtly at times, but they might want to write it like there's not one square inch in the whole domain of my church life. In the whole domain of my morning devotions. In the whole domain of of my prayer life. In which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Those aspects are are God's. And and actually, a lot of times, I kind of prefer to keep a controlling interest in my church going. (laughs) Or perhaps my prayers. Too many Christians want to rewrite that and to, to, to somehow bring about this false dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Now, when Abraham Kuyper wrote this profound truth, what was he saying? He was pointing towards biblical truth that the church must grasp. He was pointing to Revelation 4.11 that says, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He's highlighting Hebrews 1.3 that says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He reigns. He rules. He is the glory of God. And the Word of God is telling us that we've never seen anything in our lives that God did not create. And that Jesus Christ is intimately involved in all of it, upholding in existence the very things that right now are within the field of your vision and all the things that are not. It's all His. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Jesus Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So these same things, the things that we're we're looking at were made through Christ and were made for one supreme reason to belong to or to be for Christ. Verse 17, "And, and He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He's the beginning and the end. He's the origin and the destiny of every object you've ever seen, every every person you've ever encountered and come in contact with, every idea you've ever contemplated without His express, immediate, and personal sustaining right now, this very instant, we would just float away, disintegrate. All things would not hold together. He's the past. He's the present. And He's the future of everything and everyone. Everything we hear and see and smell and taste, many more of the things that you'll never know existed, Christ holding it all together. We have a Father who, according to Matthew 10.29, knows all, and not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them, Jesus said, will fall to the ground apart from your Father. 
God's plan for all of the universe, all of creation, including you, is to bring it all under the Lordship of Christ. Under His rule. Under His reign. Ephesians 1.22 And He put all things under His feet. Talking about God the Father to the Son Jesus Christ. And He gave Him as head over all things to the church. Which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so if if this is the omnipresent, intimate, and, and personal interest of the risen Christ. If, if His interest is both in the fundamental maintenance and the ultimate destiny of every molecule, of every atom, every thought, every person in the space where you live and breathe and work and function, it's unthinkable that He would not have an interest in using His people to bring about the same purposes in those same spaces. So this is where we're going. You see, God uses means to accomplish His purposes. We looked at that a few weeks ago as we talked over the concept of sphere sovereignty. He delegates His authority. He doesn't have to use us any more than He had to use anyone all throughout Scripture to accomplish his, any of His purposes. But he does. And it doesn't mean that we, we know every, in, in every detail what his plan is to bring everything under Christ. We don't know always what that's going to always look like. It also means we're not the heroes of the story. We don't come riding in on, shining ar- with, on a horse with shining armor to, to give God a hand in bringing about you know, this, this great glorious destiny where he's bringing all things under Christ. But we get to play a role in the unfolding of the biggest, best, and most satisfying of things that have ever been heard. God's plan for the creation and the redemption and the restoration of His world. And so when I feel that pull of my own heart, the pull of indwelling sin that wants to somehow restrict God's authority over any square inch of my life, it's these truths today that we need to run back to. These truths that have encouraged me to press on. These truths that are quite helpful. And this morning I want to share them in three points. First, It's three R's. You know I like alliterations. Recognizing, restoring, and redeeming. Recognizing the absolute lordship of Christ. First. Secondly, restoring a biblical understanding of vocation. And third, redeeming every square inch of life for God's glory. Let's look at each of those things starting with point number one. Recognizing the absolute authority. Excuse me, the absolute, well same thing. The absolute lordship of Christ. And that's over everything. Jesus said before He gave the Great Commission to His disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. All authority. Not parts. All authority in heaven and on earth. All authority over all of it is given to Christ. Paul highlights what this means and looks like in in the, the great Christ song of Philippians 2. 
when we're called to have the mind of humility of Christ, and and Paul walks us through what that looks like, but then he exalts him in verse 9 and says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everywhere. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's amazing in this passage, Paul takes something actually from the Old Testament, something that is only and can only be true of Yahweh. And in this breathtakingly way, he applies it directly to Jesus. He's quoting basically Isaiah 45.23, By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. To Christ. Paul takes Isaiah and this great promise and this this great prophecy and he says this is Christ to whom all things will swear allegiance. Absolute lordship. And the context of Isaiah 45 actually makes it more amazing and and as it emphatically declares that there is no other God but the one true God. And that the promise finds its fulfillment in the suffering and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that He is Lord. Paul expansively names all of the spheres that will acknowledge this universal reign of Jesus What was it? Heaven, earth, and under the earth. What is that? Everything. (laughs) All will bow. No sphere of life is exempt. The realm of the angels, the realm of humanity, the realm of the underworld and the demonic world and the devil, all will bow. And some will bow now in joyful gratefulness. Some will be forced to bow in defeat, openly acknowledging the rightful rule of the exalted Christ on the day of His return. Recognizing the absolute Lordship of Jesus Christ understands that as Lord, Jesus makes demands. As Lord, He's a ruler. He's a king. He makes demands. We, we see in, in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Who talks like that? The Lord. That's who does. Luke 14.27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is allegiance to no one else in the Lordship of Christ. He demands it. He demands you must be born again. He demands repent. He demands come to me, believe in me, love me, listen to me, abide in me, worship me in spirit and in truth. Pray always. Don't lose heart. He demands, don't be anxious. Trust me. Humble yourself. Do the will of my Father. Strive to enter into the narrow door. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not separate what God has joined together. Let your light shine before all men. Go and make disciples of the nations. And on and on. He makes demands. And listen, Recognizing the Lordship of Christ understands this. His demands are life. His demands are freedom. His demands, according to 1 John 5, are not burdensome. By this, John writes, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God. Not that we keep His commandments Excuse me, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. This is how Christians think. We don't read the Word of God and think, oh, that's too hard. If it's too hard, we get on our face and say, oh God, give me grace. We approach the Word of God the way the psalmist did in Psalm 119. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. And by Your appointment they stand this day. For all things are Your servants. And if Your law, verse 92, had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I'll never forget Your precepts, for by them You've given me life. And oh, how I love Your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 103, How sweet are Your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Incline my heart to perform Your statutes forever to the end. You see, the love of God's Word the life-giving nature of the Word of God that says, do this and, and by grace of God alone, in Christ alone, we obey. The beauty of the obedience of faith. That's what's before us as Christians in every square inch of life. To choose the obedience of faith. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, when Moses had laid out the law of God before the people of God and, 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 and then the curses, the blessings that come with it and all the curses. Then in verse 19, He calls them. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days. This is our God. His commandments are not burdensome. 
Apart from Christ, His commandments will crush us because we cannot obey. But when the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates the heart, gives us a new heart, regenerates us, gives us new life, we become a new creation. And as we walk that out as Christians, we are faced with these choices. Choose life. Obey by faith. What does all of this mean for our lives? Why do you do what you do? Why, why do you live the way you live? The ultimate goal of the Christian is to exalt Jesus Christ in every possible way and in every area of life. And how is that done? We get it in church, right? We understand it, what it might look like here, but what about tomorrow? What about all week long? There's a little Latin phrase that I think is helpful in such ways for us to understand. It's called Orum Deo. Before the face of God or before the gaze of God. And it's a beautiful little term that captures the essence of the Christian life. That we live Corum Deo. That we live our entire life in the presence of God. Under the authority of God. We recognize His totalizing Lordship not just on Sundays, but all of life, through all time, over every square inch of the world and life, all for His glory. It's understanding that whatever we're doing, wherever we're doing it, we're acting under the omnipresent gaze of God. There's no place you run to escape Him. There's, there is nothing in His domain that is secular. It's all His. To be aware of the presence of God is to be very aware of His Lordship. And the consistent experience of God's people is to recognize that. That if God is God, then He is indeed Lord. He is sovereign. Think about when the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was confronted on the road to Damascus with the risen Christ. And he gazes upon the, the white-hot glory of Christ just blazing before him. And his response isn't, who is this? It's, who are you, Lord? There's an immediate recognition of who He was. I don't know your name, but I know you're the Lord. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Paul is transformed on that road and begins of life responding to the Lord of glory by living a life that glorifies Him. Coram Deo and living Coram Deo in the Lordship of Christ, recognizing it, 
understands and recognizes that there's no higher goal than offering glory to God. This is our calling. This is our high calling, and it helps us in, when we understand this as the foundation to understand this, this concept of vocation, point two, which needs to be restored. How do we restore a biblical understanding of vocation? There were a lot of wonderful truths that were recovered in the Protestant Reformation, and, and one of them was this doctrine of vocation. But unfortunately, over the last several hundred years, it's a, it's a beautiful heritage that we have shamefully neglected and, and almost lost in the church. And we see that because we, for instance, can hear talk. I remember growing up in, this, in, in, a, in a great church, but I, I heard talk of if you're going to commit to full-time Christian work. And the only way to do that was to either be a pastor or a missionary. And so what it did is it it's created this separation of you, you have the, the, the real Christians over here. <laughs> the ones that are doing full-time Christian work. That's, and then over here is the secular people. That's all y'all. <laughs> and there was this false di dichotomy made between sacred and secular, and it just came about throughout in, in many, many different areas. As though there is anything else for a Christian to do other than Christian work. <laughs> the reestablishment of two different forms of holiness has been a, a massive uh, backsetting for the church. I think it's helpful for us to understand vocation by understanding this passage in Scripture from Exodus 31. You can turn your Bibles there on the screen as well. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I fill them with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So what's going on? They're preparing to build the tabernacle. And what happens in preparation to build the tabernacle is God comes, God the Holy Spirit comes and fills a man. And it's actually the first instance of anyone being described as filled with the Spirit in the Scriptures. And so consider this. The very first time the Bible talks of the Holy Spirit's filling someone, who is He filling? A theologian? A priest? A pastor? A craftsman. He's filling a craftsman. And He's filling them with His Spirit, with abilities. What are the indications of the Spirit's filling? He's, he says here, it's ability, wisdom. It's intelligence. He gives them understanding, knowledge, craftsmanship, gifts of God, filling of the Spirit, works of God. So it gives him this ability to do this really great work as this craftsman, right? He's a, he's a goldsmith. He's a silversmith. He works in, in brass and he's a jeweler. He's probably a woodworker along with a lot of other similar types of work. God does come later and fill the theologian, 
The Spirit comes and, and fills the prophet and all, and all those things. But the important thing here that I want you to understand is that Bezalel was called. He was called. And that's where we get the understanding of the doctrine of vocation. It comes from a Latin term. The Latin word is vocare. It means to call. He was called by God. And this in no way is to disparage the important work of, of missions, of missionaries, of, of pastors, of, of works in pastoral ministry and such. This is not to disparage any of that, but it's to highlight the fact that all Christians are called. All Christians are called. We're called to labor and, and, and to labor faithfully in our calling, no matter what it is. It might be masonry work. It might be real estate. It might be carpentry. It might be medicine, bricklaying, shopkeeping, school, high school, junior high, whatever your calling is. All of God is in all of it. And Christians who like to think like Christians should function in terms of calling, not in terms of a job. You don't just have a job. You have a calling by God. And again, we don't hold on to this just because we're making it up. It's not because Brian said that. There's a doctrinal foundation for this, and we have to fix our minds on the fact that God is in everything, not in some crazy pantheistic way, but in the biblical way. He's in everything, and He works through everything. And if God is sovereign in this way, which we affirm that He is sovereign, this means that Christ, if you will, was hidden in Bezalel, the artisan. Hidden in the craftsman. Hidden in the client. Hidden in the, in the customer. Hidden in the one behind the counter. Hidden in the one in front of the counter. Hidden in the dentist or the, or the, the patient in the chair. Why? Because two things. God provides for us through means. Right? Do we benefit from the work of the farmer? <laughs> How about the fertilizer salesman and the trucker and the grocery store clerk and the, the man milking the cows? And when we bow our head to thank God for, for breakfast, are we thanking Him for His work in and through all of these people, whether they know Him or not? We receive from God through the work of others. Right? We acknowledge this when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. What are you waiting for? A loaf to drop from heaven? <laughs> but yet we understand He's the provider of that bread on your table today. How does He provide it? Through means. He uses people. We know that God is working in and through all things. Romans 8.28 I hope you know that verse and have it memorized by now. And then not to mention all of the countless daily blessings that God gives upon His people. So God provides for us, right? When He says He, he, he gives the worm His food, or excuse me, the birds of the air their food, He's not raining worms down from the sky. God's, yet God is providing all of it. He uses means. Secondly, Christ receives from us as we each work in our vocation. Isn't that an amazing thought? Lord, when did I ever give you a hamburger? 
when you were hungry. Don't you remember? It was that time when you were at the in and out and you saw that guy and you did it unto me. This is the other side of vocation. Or perhaps you're the worker in the drive through window. And when you serve that meal, it's to be as unto the Lord. Matthew 10.42 tells us that God keeps track of every cup of cold water that is given in His name. That He reckons everything we do for others as done to and for Him. And that's an amazing thought because that means that in essence Christ is hidden in our vocation. And He's hidden in our, na- in our neighbor and our customers and our clients that we serve. And we see Him there. We discover Him there, if you will, through the eyes of faith. We were created for work. We talked about that weeks ago. Genesis 2.15. We were called to work diligently six days out of seven. Exodus 20. And we are to render all our work to Christ. Not just when the boss is present. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. In the end, Christ is your boss. And in some ways you could say Christ is your customer. Because He's in you and He works through you. And we're to receive all of the work that, we, that is done for us as a gift from Jesus Himself. Give us this day our daily bread. The mother who's feeding her child is doing the work of God, but who fills her breasts with milk? The Sovereign Lord. When the farmer plants his crop, he may not even realize it, but, but he's doing the work of God in providing food for the hungry. Now when we understand this from a Christian perspective, we do understand a few things that, about work. All, all work is full of glory, but listen, it's a glory that's apprehended by faith. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Noe as a physical therapist and a Christian is going to do physical therapy any different from the non-Christian physical therapist in his office. But it does mean that he should understand the meaning of what he does. And over time, as we understand that, this should result in greater growth and competence even in the work that we do. It's not just about your job. Bigger than that. And then it goes into even other areas, all, all of life, because a lot of times we're like, okay, great, I got it, my work is for the Lord, and then you go home. <laughs> and then you divide the sacred into the secular. No, your vocation is varied. And it extends into every aspect of your life. So, so you're not only called to be, I don't know, a, a coder or, or, a, or a website designer or a software engineer. You're also called to be a son and a student and a husband and a brother and a sister and a citizen and a church member 
We have all these various callings. Calling, when it comes to vocation, then should not just be considered in the narrow sense. It's all of life. This should also, parents, be a part of our understanding when it comes to educating and training our children. If you teach your child math and they comprehend it, but they don't understand all of life from a Christian worldview, we're failing them. Also, it's helpful to know that it's vocation and a calling from God and understanding this isn't like it's some, some magic rabbit's foot against worldly difficulties. The rain comes down on the just and on the unjust. So don't think that you know, somehow vocation means that you're just going to float through your work day on a cloud because Christ is in you. The diapers are really going to stink when you change them. <laughs> The customer is going to be rude. They're going to get irate and unreasonable. The shipments that you promised are going to get delayed. Challenges are going to happen. Rain falls on the just and unjust, but Christ is in all. We must remember these things. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, and I think it sums up the doctrine of vocation quite well. God Himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Understanding vocation and recovering this doctrine, restoring it to its rightful place within the people of God in our lives is necessary. It takes us in then to point three, redeeming every square inch of life for the glory of God. To live a life under the Lordship of Christ, under, under His totalizing Lordship, a life before the face of God, Coram Deo. It's, it's to live a life of, of, of undivided wholeness that finds its wholeness, its, its coherency, its integrity in the glory of God. A fragmented life is, is a... It's, it's a life of disintegration. It's a life of inconsistency and disharmony and confusion and conflict and contradiction and chaos. Many Christians will live Christianly in, on a Sunday and leave and, and, and live very unchristianly and wonder why there's so much turmoil and conflict in their life. Christian who compartmentalizes his life or her life into these two religious sections, religious and non-religious, have failed to, to grasp these biblical ideas that all of life is religious. All of life is God's. Christians are to live their lives in a pattern of consistency. Pattern that functions the same way whether you're in church or out of church or in the office or out of the office or with people or with nobody. We're to be the same because God is with us and we live Coram Deo. And next to this grand idea of how we're to live, every other goal and ambition when it comes to glorifying God just becomes a trifle. Now the context of this redemption, redeeming of every square inch, is love. 
When we look back to the first verse I read to you, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That chapter, if you read the whole of chapter 10, is written in the context, actually the, the previous verses before it, of this how you deal with people when there's differences of situations regarding, for instance, food. And in the ancient world, among the early Christians, there was a very difficult situation that arose where there were some people who had been saved out of um, uh, idolism, a, a, a false worship of false gods, and a part of that false worship was eating meat that, as a sacrificial meal, if you will, for the worship of that god. And there were some Christians that then became offended in essence to say, oh, we can never eat meat again. We should not eat meat anymore. Which is, by the way, the way a lot of Christians handle difficulties like this in life. Where we make it about the meat instead of the heart. <laughs> and, and the Scripture is very clear. It's not about eating the meat. It's about the heart. So eat the meat. Enjoy the meat. You're free to eat the meat. It's just meat. The idol is nothing. It's, it's a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal. It's a statue. It means nothing. However, if you're going to offend and hurt the conscience of a brother or a sister, don't eat the meat. Give up your freedom for love. So there's these principles. So when we, when we look at what it's going to take and, 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 and what's underneath redeeming all of life for every square inch, it has to start with this understanding that there's going to be a deep love involved. It's not just a black and white like show me. It's about how is what I'm doing affecting the worship of God and the love for people. This is in essence what Jesus told us in Matthew 22 when asked what's the, great command, the greatest commandment in the law? And he said in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so before we go about responding to the question, how do we redeem every square inch of life? We have to start with, is my heart in a place that I'm loving God above all things and that I'm loving people. That I'm caring about how what I'm doing affects my neighbor. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Interesting, if you were ever asked what is love and to define it, would you respond like Paul did? Here's what love is, it's fulfilling the law. God is greatly glorified when we love His image bearers. Him first and His image bearers. Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law. And his point here is that believers should view all of our social obligations as obligations of love. And we should fulfill them by doing them. By actually obeying and walking it out. The obedience of faith is love proclaiming the Lordship of Christ over me and loving. So how do we 
move forward. With a heart of love, understanding the context of redeeming every square inch, how do we redeem these other things? How do you redeem coffee? That's part of creation. Baseball. Spring training just started. You better figure that one out. Home decor. Diapers. Marriage. We could go on and on. I create your own list. <laughs> you got you got issues or whatever going on. Let's ask these questions. And sometimes we get overwhelmed because it can be overwhelming to start thinking about obeying Christ in such a way that everything we do, every square inch of our lives, gives God the glory that He deserves. And we start getting overwhelmed with what, what that looks like. Live out this aspect, which is a cultural aspect. We talked about culture last week. To live out the cultural aspect of our calling. We should ask three questions every time we find ourselves engaging in a certain realm of God's world or culture. We talked about culture last week of how ultimately it's worship. And God has structured things in creation His way that are unchanging and not to be defiled. So the structure is set, but now because of the fall, the direction is twofold. That worship will either go to God or will go to creation itself. Whether it's some object or whether that's a person, or whether it's a thing or whether it's money, whatever it might be, we are, our, our hearts will worship. How are we to, to live? Three questions based on our summary of what biblical worldview is. Do you remember the three words? What are they? Creation, fall, redemption. If you can harness that, you'll, ha you'll, you'll be on track to thinking like a Christian. What is God's creational design for this thing? Secondly, fall. How has it been corrupted and misdirected by our sin and rebellion? And include yours in that. <laughs> Not by just theirs, by our sin and rebellion. What's his design? How has it been corrupted? How has it been misdirected? And thirdly, redemption. How can I bring redemption or healing and restoration through gospel redirection? Through an understanding of the full-orbed gospel and redirect that worship back to God who deserves it. Three great questions that are very simple, but not necessarily easy. The answers to those questions don't come easy. Sometimes they come with a lot of pain. And we have to ask God to empower us, to give us great wisdom as we work hard to, to figure out how to apply God's redemptive work into every square inch of the cultural and, and, and realities all around us in every part of our lives. You're not always going to find the clearest verse on it. You're going to need the wisdom of God. But you can certainly fit into the categories of creation, fall, and redemption, and through the wisdom of God, through the Word of God, find the clear direction that turns that, that, that thing that's been corrupted and then misdirected by sin and rebellion back to worship the Creator. So let's think about it. Coffee. Who likes coffee? All you godly people, raise your hands. Uh, I love coffee. I love having coffee every morning pretty much. It's 
it's kind of my thing. I, I feel wonderful when I have my cup of coffee and my Bible and spend time with God. And coffee, God created it, right? Through culture, we have refined it and been able to process it in such a way that we can drink it in a certain way. That's culture, right? We talked about creation, what God makes, culture, what we do with what God makes. So you take coffee, a good thing of God, right? How, how many say amen? A good thing of God, a good creation of God, amen? Look, Alan was silent. Alan was silent. <laughs> he doesn't like coffee. We're going we're gonna to keep working on it. I know. We're close. How has coffee been corrupted and misdirected by our sin and rebellion? It might sound like a weird question, right? But yet, sin affects everything. And I'll give you one example. It's when the heart, the human heart, you know, and, and we make jokes about it. The person that wakes up and like, I haven't had my coffee yet, <laughs> right? And we, we give ourselves permission to be a jerk <laughs> because we haven't had coffee. Or we get addicted to it. So much so that we get headaches and things without, like, we, I can't live without coffee. That's a cultural thing, isn't it? You may or may not be there. <laughs> I really like coffee, but why I do understand that if, if it's controlling my life in such a way that my sinful heart has needed that coffee to, to be able to bless my wife and kids in the morning and serve them well, then I am misdirecting the use of coffee. It's worshiping the creation, the creature, being used for not godly, glorious means. Does that make sense? Using a simple example, but take that into all of life. Now redirect it. Redirect it. It's a change of mindset. It's a change of understanding. A change of it's, it's something I can have in the morning and receive with thanksgiving. I can drink and thank God for the gift. I can share the gift with someone else. I can make you a cup of coffee. I can, we can meet over coffee and enjoy the relationship. So, I know it's a silly example, but take it with everything. Take that and run with it. Apply that into every square inch of your life. Creation, what's his, God's design for this? How has this now been corrupted? And, and worship, is, it, it's been misdirected to, out to something or someone else. And how can I, as a redeemed child of God, soldier of God, how can I bring redemption? How can I go into that space and bring redemption through the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ and somehow bring about a redirection of, of that place and that thing? This is our calling. This ultimately is where God is directing history. Where He's taking everything. We might as well start now. Think of the, the end of the days. The day of the Lord in Zechariah 14 talks of, of this great day when the Lord will return. And on that day, it says, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. That was something that was inscribed on the uh, forehead uh, little plate of the priests in the temple. Holiness, holy to the Lord. That, that was a sacred thing. And now he's saying that sacred thing is, is God, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, has made holy the bells that ring on the horse's reins. 
And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil of the meat and sacrifice in them. Folks, when Christ died, that curtain tore in two. And that was the presence of God opening through Jesus Christ to sinful men like me to repent of sin upon hearing the truth of the Gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ for me. He died. My sin was put on Him. He was buried. I was buried with Him. When He rose, I'm resurrected to new life in Him. For what? So I can sit around and do nothing until He either takes me home or returns? No! So I, with the Holy Spirit's filling, can go into every area of life and work and labor to bring the Gospel, the full-orb Gospel, and all of the glory of it into every area of life. We are called to do our best in every area of life for the glory of God. And even if that, our very best is just but a weak shadow of what is truly worthy of our Maker. Absolutely everything in life matters to God. He cares. Not only about what goes on in the four walls of this congregational gathering and those like it, but about the going on in every corner of of this world. May we live Christianly. May we think Christianly. Not only as the church gathered on Sunday morning for worship, but as the church scattered into the world where we can glorify God in our work, in our leisure, in our community life. Where with serious joy we take up our callings to see every square inch of life redeemed and therefore redirected for the glory of God alone.